good is Australia? This fucking language. Let there be a thousand blossoms bloom as far as I'm concerned. But I ain't spending any time on it. Don't stop wearing the Speedos. You're listening to Decode, the Batuta Advocates podcast series for those Australians who have tuned out or never tuned in to the dark arts of politics. It's called being, you wouldn't believe it, a goddamn bloody adult. Hello and welcome to Decode, the Batuta Advocates political podcast. My name is Wendell Hussey. I have Dior Dave with me here once again. And today we have an interesting guest on the podcast. Um, We like to get interesting guests on. We like to pick their brains, talk to them about their area of expertise. And today we've got a professor, an author of 30 books, one of the, uh, I guess you could say, founding fathers of cultural and media and political studies and the intersection of all of that. Most Mm. people, I'd say, who've done a media degree or been to university and studied communications or media probably would have read some of his work. Talking about Graham Turner, his latest book is out now. It's called The Shrinking Nation, about the state of Australia, the politics in Australia, and what the future holds. Graham, dialing in from the lovely northern rivers of New South Wales, thanks very much for joining the podcast. Good to be here. Now, you've written this book, The Shrinking Nation, which is an interesting one, and I recommend to everyone out there. You talked about starting to write it in 2021, which obviously was a pretty hectic time, a time that everyone remembers. There was lots of change going on, lots of people thinking different things, lots of people saying different things. Was the malaise of the pandemic what spurred you to write this book or was it something that you'd been mulling over for quite some time and it just kind of kick-started the process? I guess I've been thinking about it for quite some time because I've been looking at, I mean, I guess what I was really concerned about over the preceding couple of years was just the the decline or the degradation of the political culture and the amount of rubbish that we had to hear (laughs) about politics in this country and how little actually seemed to be produced in terms of positive change. So I guess I was in position so that when, it was actually when the floods hit as well as when we had COVID up here because in both cases, the level of government services and the level of government interest in the conditions that people in rural communities were experiencing, the level of government interest was almost zero. And you could just see how difficult it was for people and how communities had to kind of fend for themselves and work out how to deal with it themselves. So really I was starting to think, well, actually, you know, the nation is supposed to be better than that. We're actually supposed to work together to the common good. And it now just seems as if national politics is just interested in maintaining power rather than actually improving people's lives. So that, you know, that was the thing that kept on driving me and ended up shaping what I wrote in the book. Because it did really feel that during the floods, that felt like a time where there had been a lot of frustration with politicians building over the last years and decades, but it really felt like it came to a head there and it, it showed that a lot of politicians didn't seem particularly interested in representing the people that voted them in or helping the people that voted them in. It just seemed to be about what was the best for their political power and their position. Yeah, it felt like a real reckoning with the the floods and the pandemic and everything there coming together. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that was the point where we saw the cost of, of a particular model of politics that wasn't actually about representing the people, but was actually about maintaining power. And, um, you know, a lot of commentary around the way in which governments of, of all colours, not just, it wasn't just the Morrison government, although that was the most sort of vivid example of it. A lot of governments were easily influenced by vested interests and uh, listened to the banks and the mining industry in ways that meant that they didn't listen to, like, particularly rural communities. And so you, you did have a sense that this was a point where people were starting to say, well, we've put up with this for a long time. Maybe we could do better. Yeah. Or we should be doing better. This isn't acceptable as a way to continue running the country. Yeah. I mean, I do want to come back to that idea of we should be better than this that you spoke about a bit in the book. But as you did mention before, these issues have been boiling over for a while and, you know, COVID pretty much shunned the light on them for a lot of people. Did that affect some sort of positive change with people seeing these issues or was COVID and the lockdowns that caused that sort of reset that we had, was that a missed opportunity to really affect some kind of radical change while we could? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think it did, in a way, both things happened. That on the one hand, there were there were particular politicians and particular spheres of government that appeared totally uninterested in dealing with, with COVID. And there were others that really focused on it and did what was politically risky, but uh, important for the community. And so you you compare the way in which each of the state premiers operated, for instance, compared to to Morrison, and you can see there's a, there's a real difference about what they felt their role should be. You know how much intervention they should make, how how many political risks they should take in order to protect the common good, and so on. So I think that you could kind of draw two quite contradictory conclusions from the COVID. One, that was the point where people realised enough is enough, we've got to do better than this. And the other was that there are examples in various locations, and Victoria is the one they normally, commentators normally talk about. There are plenty of places where uh, you could see interventions aimed at helping people rather than just maintaining a political party's um, position in power. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it is easy, you know, sitting, looking at other states or other countries and going, why can't we just do that? That seems to be working well and that seems to be smart. But you do talk about that in your book. You say we should be better than this, talking about things like indigenous disadvantage or climate change, gender, other issues surrounding that. But, you know, given Australia's uh, history and track record on a lot of these issues, I'm interested to know what if not from history, what informs that opinion of yours that we should be better than this? You're asking what what makes me think we should be better than that? Yeah. If, yeah, if, you know, there's a lot of stuff in our history on issues like, you know, how we treat Indigenous people and gender that would almost signify that we are doing better than we have been. So what gives you the hope that we should be better than this? Yeah, that's a good point, I guess. In, in many ways, you can talk to you can point to that kind of improvement. I guess what I'm thinking about is, I suppose an example would be it would be housing. So where once upon a time, government invested in social housing and built you know hundreds of thousands of, of units for people. Now that's really been outsourced to the market. And of course the market wants to make money out of it and they don't make money out of the poor, at least not easily. And so <laughs> I think that there has been particular areas around 
around the distribution of opportunity, around equality of all kinds, you know, social and, and gendered and, and racial. In, our, in all of those areas, we should be doing better than we are. And if you wanted a really inflamed example of that, look at the way in, in which the debate around the voice has gone off the rails in the last few months, where now it's a matter of who's got the loudest voice and uh, who can tell the most alarming fictions about what the voice is likely to uh, result in. There's something I wanted to ask you about. You talk a bit about the media and the way things are covered and this age of kind of where facts can kind of now be interpreted into what people want to see and different truths can be offered up and all that sort of stuff. Is it just easier for media commentators and politicians now to throw around misinformation and muddy the waters and sensationalise things like the voice debate than actually just sit down and talk about what's best for a nation and for a people? Certainly easier. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a lot easier to, to, to blame somebody that you create as, as an elite or as a, as a special interest mm. for everything that's gone wrong rather than actually setting out to fix it. But I think really one of the things that's changed is, is the way in which information is circulated. When you had information circulated through some kind of authority, either governmental or institutional, or through a, a kind of centralised mainstream media that was subject to regulation on in terms of its content, then, the, you know, you had a basis for for agreeing what was true and what wasn't. But I think what's happened now with the, the proliferation of media platforms and the fact that a whole lot of those media platforms aren't subject to any kind of regulation about community standards or about the truth of what they, of what they are publishing, I think that's made it a lot easier to muddy the waters. It's actually much easier now. I mean, seems, the voice is a good example. It's actually much e- much easier for those opposing the voice to raise doubts, never having to prove what the problems mm, are, mm. but suggesting they might be problems. It's much easier than, for them to do that than for the yes case to go out and say, this is the positive things that we want it to do. Because one of the problems about saying these are the things we want it to achieve is they're then vulnerable to accusations that, it's, that they're kind of activists or that it's being run by elites. And Yeah, the misinformation is really stepping up. The one that I've been seeing over the last little while is you cannot put in a fence post or you can't dig a hole in your backyard in Western Australia because of laws that are in place over in Western Australia, which you quickly go and look at the actual laws in Western Australia and it, it's a complete load of shit. Like what people are saying in terms of you can't dig a hole, you can't do anything in your backyard. Mate, you can't repair fence lines because you can't disturb the ground without having an advisor yeah. come and check. And it's like you go and look at it and the laws actually state, no, no, if the ground is being used for purpose that it's being used for before, it's fine. If you're going less than 50 centimetres below the ground in your own backyard, completely fine. But it's just easier for people to roll with this stuff because it seems to roll them up. Do we know why people are so interested in getting riled up by this sort of stuff. After the last couple of years, which have been pretty hectic, there's been so much information, there's been so much seemingly conflict online. Do we know why people still want to get fired up about this stuff and want to get into arguments? And That's a really great question because it's really hard to tell what came first, you know, the, 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 the resentment and the anger that we see expressed in a whole variety of ways now or the manner in which social media, but also tabloid media, uh, discovered that the quickest way to attract a market is to scare the crap out of them. And it is, I mean, we know now for sure that Facebook 
changed its algorithms in order to respond to what they learned about how successful fear and anger uh, would be in driving people to, to their platform. We know that. But it's hard to tell whether that's something that was actually created by social media or whether mm. it was just waiting there to be activated and, um, and that there are deeper causes. I mean, my guess is that there are deeper causes, that, you know, there, that a lot of the things that we thought were settled and, and agreed upon about equality, about gender relations, about race, you know, maybe what was happening was that people felt that they couldn't say what they really believed. You know, maybe it's, there's an extent to which handsome is picked that up and, and is saying people are, are being silenced. I don't think they're being silenced, but I think what's happened is that changes in the way in which information circulates has emboldened people to say things that they know are, are, are racist, that they know are discriminatory, and that they know are unpleasant, but they now feel that there's no penalty to saying that. Yeah, and that they, they know that there's no consequences. Yeah, they know they won't feel the ramifications of saying yeah, these things online. That's right. And, and it's also the case that if you've got anonymity online, it means you're protected from repercussions. That, again, is what that does is kind of release the social control over what we see as being acceptable. And once you release that, then people take advantage of that and say stuff that is damaging. Do you think there is any way to put some sort of social control back on it? Because I think one of the great marketing tools and one of the benefits of social media was the argument that it allows people to have a voice, it allows people to interact with other people from you know different parts of the state, country, world, et cetera, et cetera. But obviously with something so widespread, there's a lack of regulation. Can you foresee any particular type of way of putting a regulation on this and bringing back in that form of control and civility to things like social media? I think if you've got to do it, if, if you can do it, you've got to do it right at the very um, initiating point. So I think what you what needs to happen is some interrogation of the way algorithms are designed. And so... Uh, if algorithms are designed to privilege points of view that are hate speech or discriminatory or abusive, that's been done deliberately because that generates more clicks. So presumably you can re you reverse that process and design it so that you're actually not privileging that kind of uh, response or that kind of material. I mean, I don't know if you've come across the book that Frances Hogan wrote, who the woman who was the the Facebook whistleblower, and she was saying that what happened at Facebook was they were worried about not getting enough material shared. This was quite early on. And they found that most people didn't share what they saw on Facebook beyond their family. And so there was a limited number of, of uh, new users coming online. And so they found that if, if they were circulating stuff that made people angry, they shared it. And so they made more and more they made it easier and easier for that stuff to reach their market. And so what I draw from that is that if it, if it was possible for them to do that in the first place, why wouldn't it be possible for them to change that so that their algorithms actually were more socially responsible? And so the stuff's not, not getting out there in the first place. You're not, you're not actually facilitating the sharing of, of, so, of antisocial material, but you're still allowing freedom of speech, you're still allowing an open access, etc., and you're not having to censor. So what you do is not deal with it through censorship, but deal with it by talking about the kind of responsibility that needs to go into the way the algorithms are designed in the first place. Mm. 
Does that then come back to the commercial realities of that, of the algorithm seems to be designed the way it is because, as you said, outrage and hatred will get more clicks, will get more advertising revenue in turn, and it seems to be the same way with, I would say, more mainstream media in Australia and, and the UK and America as well, that the outrage does sell, it generates traction, it generates shareability online, it generates engagement. Is there any way to kind of temper that, the commercial reality of that being what sells? Do, do media organisations need to make better content? Do they need to make um, more? So- obviously, you know, ideally they make more socially responsible content, right? But if the socially responsible content isn't selling and isn't getting an engagement, is there any kind of solution to that? Yeah, look, I don't, I don't think there is, to be honest. I, I think that it's hard to come up with changes to the current situation that maintain the commercial benefits that Facebook or Google are, are getting from it. that, And that's why it's difficult because there are commercial consequences. But, you know, sooner or later, the community has to say, well, we're not happy with having the nature of our community changed in negative ways, simply so these guys can make a lot of money. You know, it's, you know, it's one of the things where we seem to have, accepted that capitalism is very simple that it's all about the right to make money but it, there's more to it than that there's a there's a great there's a great sequence in citizen kane you know the great classic movie where citizen kane who's the you know who's the kind of the prototype for rupert murdoch of the future is, is told by his mentor he says there's there's no secret to making money if that's all you want to do and the implication you know is, is that actually You should want to do more than that. And most of our businesses would argue that in principle, but if you look what's happened to our economy in the last 30 years, it's become increasingly the case that it's tilted towards the maximisation of profits rather than some kind of social utility or or common good. That's seen as being outside the realm of the commercial. Don't worry about that. Now, that didn't used to be the case. That's really a kind of neoliberal invention of the last 30, 40 years. But it didn't used to be the case. There used to be a sense of social responsibility. I'm not sure how we get back to that, but it does seem to me that there's at least a theoretical possibility that we could because we've been there before and there are ways of making business think about the social bottom line in more effective ways than a lot of them do these days. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these issues that we are talking about now aren't unique to Australia. I mean, they're, you know, happening all around the world with algorithms, with the, you know, the growing of uh, corporate and big business. But with Australia being, again, a unique case of, you know, small population, quite isolated, quite a concentrated media landscape and things like that, does that make it easier or does it make it harder to kind of deal with the fallout from these issues? In the past, it's made it easier. I think that we had quite a, a complex regulatory structure for the mass media for a long time. And I think when social media turned up and when the, you know, the, big, the big tech giants turned up, it was all seen as too hard. But it also coincided with a political enthusiasm for deregulation as well. So those two things combined. So it is possible, you know, you, unfortunately the examples that you see of, of more aggressive regulation tend to be in authoritarian countries. So, so you know, that's not a good thing. And so you'd have to, you have to think about, well, what would it actually mean and what, how will you do it? But it is the case that so much of what's happened in the last few years 
has been predicated on the idea that these are global com companies that no national jurisdiction has any capacity to rein them in. But there are examples where there are, you know, consortia of national jurisdictions like in the EU that have said, no, we're not going to put, put up with this. We're going to make sure these guys pay for the privilege that they're getting and we're going to make sure that what they pay goes back into the community. So I think, you know, that's there are there are some movements in that direction in Australia around uh, circulation of news and so on with Google and Facebook, but it's pretty minimal. There's a lot more could be done to see that Australia gets compensatory uh, benefit that pushes back against untrammeled power for the big tech giants to tune the society onto the wavelengths that make them the most money. Yeah, you always hear those, um, the, the big companies always threatening to take their business elsewhere mm -hmm. or take their business offshore. We just never seem to see it. I was interested when you're talking there about deregulation and the social responsibility that the nation saw previously. I just wanted to know your thoughts on that whole process of kind of deregulation. W was it that times for the majority of Australians were quite good for quite some time, that they started taking for granted things that were regulated, things that were owned by the government, public assets. And because times were good, it kind of, we fell asleep at the wheel a little bit and allowed things to be constantly deregulated and constantly pushed towards making a profit. And it's continued to slide and slide and slide and slide to the point where we're getting to now where people are going, hey, the system seems to be a little bit broken. There are things we need to fix, but now it's a lot harder to fix the things that we've undone. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that is what happened, that gradually people got lulled into um, ignoring the importance of, of government in managing how society functions. But I also think that that on there's that corresponding rise in, um, in investment in markets as a way of distributing opportunity and and an assumption that markets were better mechanisms for running the country, really, than government. And so you've got that small government neoliberal stuff going around at the same time. You've got talk about globalisation being essential to accept and understand and participate in. All of those things work against the kind of national regulatory structure. And, you know, coming from lots of different points in time. And as you say, you know, these were good times. There seemed to be very little reason to be too worried about that. Certainly around issues around globalisation. You know, there are all kinds of, of uh, examples from the 80s on, really, where responding to globalisation in a positive way brought some clear benefits to Australia. But I think there's a kind of naivety in thinking that actually <laughs> that's going to continue and that there won't be periods when national jurisdictions believe that they no longer uh, need to participate in that. And COVID, you know, COVID was the great demonstration that globalisation doesn't solve everything. You know, globalisation helps spread the pandemic, you know. So I think people started realizing, oh, maybe we ought to look, look at this and maybe we ought to be retaining some manufacturing capacity. You know, once upon a time, you know, we would have been able to produce our own uh, vaccines and so on. So. I think that that there were a bunch of influences, some some understandable, some benign, some just straight out exploitatory, that that worked against any kind of argument for regulation. And uh, I know I was I was writing stuff in the you know 15, 20 years ago 
arguing about cultural policy and arguing for regulation. Those kinds of arguments were increasingly in the minority and getting pushed back by people working in government policy who were saying, no, 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 let the market run free. It will organise everything and we don't have to worry about it. And pretty convenient for governments because, you know, they're, if the market stuffs things up, that's the market's fault, not theirs. And so mm. they can walk But if away. the market does things well, then obviously the government had a hand in that and helped them out, you know? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they, they congratulate themselves on it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, it does seem like both major parties have, you know, well and truly gone beyond the point of even, you know, just saying we now accept these neoliberal policies, we're happy to deregulate anything. Both major parties have seemed to accept that and perhaps not as a direct result, but, you know, the stats do show that their their votes are falling to the two major parties. Are uh, they going out to the fringes, to the minor parties? But you do talk in your book about the idea of change fatigue, which is this notion, you could probably explain it better than I can, but just of, you know, the constant change and rapid changes that we have in the world, you know, gives a sense of fatigue to people. So how do you see those two ideas balancing that this change fatigue along with what we were speaking about before that people are now, especially since COVID, waking up to these ideas that it doesn't have to be like this and we can do better. Yeah, it's, it, it is a bit of a balance, I think. I mean, you're right that there are both those things in play and they push in, in opposite directions. On the one hand, you know, there is this weariness with change, but I also think a lot of that weariness was driven by the sense that government was incompetent and unable to affect positive change in a way that actually made a difference. You know, I think that's still around. You know, I I live in the Northern Rivers. I look at Lismore and I see the example of how inadequate government response to that situation has been, where there are still people living in tents and shelves of homes and so on, waiting for some kind of rescue from government support. So, you know, you you can see how people get fed up with that. But on the other hand, I think the, the fact that so much of government in the last 20 years has kind of run dead on big issues. Climate change is the most obvious one. Where And it's, it has left a vacuum for people on the left or on progressive, people with progressive politics are becoming increasingly fed up and saying we must do something about it. And so you do have examples like the Teals, but you also have the increased support for the Greens in places where uh, you know, I was amazed to see the Greens pick up a seat in Brisbane, for instance, in suburban Brisbane, for instance. I lived in Brisbane for years. I can't imagine in those years the Greens picking up a seat there. So I think there is, you know, there's actually a battle there. And ironically, it's a battle that's taking place on the right and the left of politics rather than in the centre. And the centre is still not all that well populated by by politicians. You know, it, they might be there. I think the Labor Party, the current government, May, may situate itself there, but it's actually not doing a whole lot that would be implementing progressive politics that people on the left of them would want to see happening, and it's not doing a, a whole lot, a lot of the time, to discredit the more status quo stuff that they're getting from people on the right. So at the moment, you know, there's a lot of caution. Everybody talks about that being a, a hallmark of what's currently happening in, in government, but I do think that means that that still leaves a vacuum that people will look to that drives them away from the major parties and may actually lead them towards uh, their opponents. Yeah, I mean, I think 
most people in Australia would probably agree with the categorization that the government is quite incompetent and probably more broadly government in general. But do you think that sense of disillusionment is almost working in favor of the government? And maybe it is different from major parties to minor parties. But do you think that uh, having this idea that government is inherently incompetent just leaves us without room for change and without trust that change will ever be in the interests of the people. Yeah, that's the danger, I guess. um, I mean, I think that the current government benefited from what was clearly a big national sigh of relief when the Morrison government departed. Uh, You know, I don't think that's a contentious thing to say because it was clearly, if you looked at history of Arab governments in the last 40, 50 years, you know, it's got to be at the bottom of the ladder. And so... I think there was that sense of relief when they went. And that, you know, that's that's got Albanese and Co. a certain way, but it they can't live off that yep. forever. <laughs> and so something has to happen. And I think their task now is to find a way to build trust in government and their capacity to do things in the interest of the community rather than simply do enough to stay in power. I wanted to ask about the political class, and I know this is going to be a generalisation, but I guess it's more in regards to the two major parties. You speak a lot about the status quo in your book. I think a lot of people have the opinion that politicians come in and they just basically want the job, they want to get paid, they want the perks of the job, and they don't seem to be that interested in bringing about change. It does seem like not a lot of change is happening, a lot of of monumental change is happening. Why are all of these people from the political class moving into politics? Why do they want this job rather than just a cushy corporate job that pays probably the same in the private sector? Good question. I mean, you know, I had quite a lot to deal to do with, with um, policy in, in the last, you know, 20 odd years around research policy and higher education. And so I had quite a lot to do with, not just with politicians, but also with their staffers and with the bureaucracy. And the staffers seem to be getting younger and younger and younger and coming pretty much straight out of, out of like a political nursery, you know, in student politics and working as, as, as staffers. And I think what, you know, one of the attractions is just a very seductive environment because there is a sense of, of power. There's a sense that you're actually at the centre of things. The weird thing is that power doesn't seem to translate into actually achieving (laughs) anything other than more power. Just winning more power and winning more games. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be, there doesn't seem to be a kind of mission for for some of the people that I talked to who were, well, you know, for instance, I was on the Prime Minister's Science, Engineering and Innovation Council, which was a kind of foresighting group, and and the Prime Minister chaired it, Cabinet came along, and so you actually got to talk to a lot of people. And there was a spectrum. There were people who had fire in their belly and were there because they wanted to create change. And there are other people who simply love being at the centre of power. And that was that was the aphrodisiac for them. That's what they wanted and that's why they were there. But it does seem that if you if you go back in time, you look at who was going into parliament, you know, 40 years ago, there was a much more diverse, I mean, they're all male, but there was much more diverse occupational background. You know, there were working class people coming into politics. It seems to have become much more of a political, of a middle class occupation than it used to be and so somebody like Jackie Lambie you know stands out as this really great example of somebody with a bit of authenticity because she speaks from a particular class position 
that's not well represented in that in that parliament. So it, it, it you know maybe maybe there's work to be done on on actually what drives people into politics now that that takes a historical perspective and looks at what's changed because something must have changed because what they do when they get into politics. And when they get into power, that has changed. That is what I wanted to ask about as well, the political class there, in terms of do you have any suggestions or how we can avoid getting so many fucking lawyers in our federal and state parliament? It just seems to be you look around, lawyer, 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 <laughs> lawyer, lawyer, as you said, all coming from the same background. How do we get people from different backgrounds into parliament and involved in a representative democracy? Unfortunately, the answer to that is having a larger number of people from more diverse backgrounds join the political parties. And, uh, you know, the, the numbers, I mean, what's, it's really staggering how that's changed, how, you know, once upon a time, membership into political parties was in the hundreds of thousands. Now it's in the tens of thousands and going south. And so people don't want to be part of what these parties are. And so they're setting up alternative groups, usually around particular issues. So you see it growth in activism around particular issues rather than around belonging to a party. And parties tend to develop policy now that is fairly bland and um, not particularly brave. And so why would you, you know, if you really wanted to achieve something, why would you belong to one of the major parties? That's a question that I think a lot of people would ask themselves. And clearly the answer to that for a lot of people is no, because the, the numbers who belong to both the Labor Party and the uh, the Liberal Party and uh, the Nationals is the numbers are declining have been declining for years and it's getting it's getting worse. So I think that if you had a greater participation from a broader participation in the parties themselves, you would you would necessarily produce change in who gets elected. But at the moment, it's a bit of a club. You know, the political class is one of the things that's shrinking, and it's shrinking around a particular nucleus of privileged people who are interested in power rather than change. It's like the game of rugby union. They talk about wanting to expand it and wanting to grow the grassroots and wanting to find new people to come into the game. But at the end of the day, they really do like it to be a nice little club yep. made up with all of their mates from school. Yeah, they're partnering with RM Williams. They're not partnering yeah. with Kmart's new yeah. collection. Yeah. No marketing yeah. policies. Yeah, exactly. Now, we a lot of this chat has you know i wouldn't blame the listener for being a bit down and out about the future of our country but you do talk a bit more optimistically in the book towards the end about the future of australia do you think that your book overall presents an optimistic outlook for the future or is it bad news to come well it's interesting you know when i was writing the book and i, I put in my first draft to the publisher and, and um my publisher had a look at it she said it's really relentless, you know, <laughs> because it, I mean, there's so many, there's so many bad stories to tell, and so I, I thought, yeah, that's true. You can't just, it's all doom. You've got to think about other ways. And one of the things I think that is a way out is changing the way in which we think about the society and, and about the nation, and and that's to do with dislodging the economy from being the primary target of, of policy. So. We talk about the economy being important and getting surpluses and so on, but only because that's a means to an end. It's an end of creating a better nation, whereas, unfortunately, the nation has become reduced to the idea of the economy and the economy has been reduced to the idea of business. And so they're the interests that policy are organised around. And I think 
a greater concentration on rebuilding a national culture that's inclusive and diverse would make a difference. And if we stop thinking about the economy as the most important thing, we might think that, okay, the economy might, might be better off with a surplus, but the nation would be better off if people on JobSeeker were given a level of support that enabled them to live with dignity and able to afford food and shelter. Now, the, the role of government is to provide shelter and security and well-being for its population is not to serve the interest of business, the mining industry, the banks, etc. That's not the preeminent process. You know, it's something that you might do, but it's more important to look at the quality of the society and the quality of the culture that you produce. So, long answer, but you know, when I actually looked at thinking, well, what would you do? I talked about the importance of reviving cultural policy and thinking what that's produced and creating a sense of who we are and providing us with activities that we actually enjoy. And um, I think that's that's probably an area where a lot can be done. And there is some sign that this current government is is thinking along those lines, you know, that they've actually set up a natural national cultural policy for, for the first time for quite a long time. And although I've got reservations about how comprehensive that is, that's a good start. So I think there are things that can be done. And the, the other thing, I suppose, there's still lots of things happening within the culture to make you feel good about being part of it. You know, I watched the Matildas last night. <laughs> that made me... That made me feel pretty good. Yeah. Oh, man, that but, was incredible. Better than the cricket, that's for sure. Mm. But, um, yeah. Well, right. Yeah, you had the choice last night which one you watched. You know, I made the right choice. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, you do point to, you know, the growth of women's sport in Australia, the last couple Australian of the years as well, uh, Dylan Alcott and Grace Tame as, you know, these more, I guess, pop cultural side of Australia that can be looked at as, you know, an optimistic force for the future. Where do you think Sonia Kruger winning the gold Logie fits into that? Oh, that's a bad step in the dude. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how people feel that. They've got a public platform to say that kind of mm, thing. Yeah. I was just going to say, do you think that, uh, you know, more than anything else recently just shows the disconnect between a lot of Australia and the media class or the political class? Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. That I think it's very easy for those two groups, the political class and the media, to become isolated because so much of what they do is, is, is directed inwards. I think, you know, there are plenty of examples that within the media that, that suggest that people are aware of that and are trying to, to correct it. But there are lots of moments where you think, really, you need to think about your responsibility to the people you're talking to and what the effect of what you do might be. And um, I think, you know, the comments that Sonia Kruger made about Muslims sh should never be acceptable. Yeah. I just wanted to finish up asking you about cultural policy there that you just mentioned. Can you explain to us that the kind of the aims and the benefits and the stuff that can be provided by cultural policy? The idea with, behind cultural policy was, was actually pretty simple in a way. It was, it was trying to build a national community that, that's viable, that has things in common that they enjoy, things that speak to various parts of the community and make them feel like they belong. And so um, the idea of, of cultural policy was initially, I think, uh, in Australia there to 
create a sense of Australian identity. And that was based on the idea that we didn't have one. And so there was a lot of support for the film industry and for, for literary publications and so on, as well as within television, aimed at telling Australian stories. And, you know, one of the things I talk about briefly in the book is, is if you think back about the things that those those policies have produced, you know, from a film like The Castle to to um, to the kinds of, of high art acquisitions we, that have been made for the galleries and so on, you can see that they're in quite complicated ways they do reach out to lots of people within the community and make them feel like the society that they live in is worthwhile, you know, and it's viable. Unfortunately, that becomes, it's very easy to represent that as kind of, you know, touchy-feely bullshit, you know, who cares about culture? That can be, be set aside to be dealt with by somebody else. I think that's a real mistake. I think that um, there are lots of things that we gain pleasure from that have been produced by interventions in cultural policy that are important to the way we feel about the place we live in. And if we can keep on doing that, we feel better about the place we live in. We are a richer community as a, as a result of that. Yeah, absolutely. Wrapping your arm around a random person at the pub after the Matildas bang in their fourth goal against Canada, it gives you that sense of community, that sense of optimism and that joy to be a part of something bigger. Graham Turner, the author of The Shrinking Nation, which is out now. Dave and myself recommend everybody goes and gets a copy and have a read. But Graham, thanks very much for joining us today. Great to chat. Yeah, you're welcome. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Graham. Cheers. Cheers.